Want to know what strategies real graduates use to launch their career? Well, here's your chance. From personal stories to insider tips, our interviews with graduates and campus recruiters will equip you with the knowledge and inspiration you need to take off and stand out from the crowd. Brought to you by Prospel, your one-stop shop for finding and securing your dream internship or fresh graduate job. Thanks for jumping on, man. Like I said, especially at this hour in the morning. Ben shared your background and I thought, oh, this is interesting, kind of everything from pizza making to professional services and now video production. Yeah, yeah. I do a bit of freelance video and I work for Lululemon as well. It's like a retail assistant with them. And I my video as I just pursue that outside of my working hours. And what's nice. the sign? One label. So fingers in every man, You're a man of many talents. Yeah, good on it. How, how does one go about starting a wine lab? So one of my mates, he studies viticulture. His family owns a vineyard. He's grown up around wine his whole life. And he yeah. had some differing ideas to his dad and said, all right, I'm going to do what I reckon would be good here. Approached me and another mate and said, hey, lads, I've got an idea. He did a paper about like what consumerism of wine and how different elements tie into it. So he was thinking I need to capitalize on these elements because he just feels like a lot of traditional winemakers or labels don't do that. Man, that sounds like a whole nother interview. I've myself noticed how the kind of boutique beer breweries have taken off and yeah. a, lot of, a lot of kind of fun, youthful stuff happening in that space. Is it something along those lines? If I reflect on wine brands in comparison, they're quite almost targeting an older demographic and a bit stale. Maybe that just speaks to the type of the difference between wine drinkers and beer drinkers. Yeah, it's somewhat like I definitely think there's an element of that. It's mainly just targeting new varieties in a sense. Uh, I think overall tastes change a lot in regards to wine. In the last couple of years, people are moving away from those full-bodied reds. So it's just capitalizing on those trends and trying to find what the next thing new grape variety yeah. starting from first principles good stuff that sounds like a fun project yeah it's exciting obviously there was so much rain this year though so everything got delayed heaps but it's on its way now which is cool cool man and so you're kind of in marketing in a sense with your video production stuff in a sense yeah i made videos so i'm just building out my client base at the moment but one of my mates he owns a gym do you know fitsop i don't actually know it's like f45 but it's one of those yep. friends Gym, so I do it for his fist off specifically. And then through him, I've been in contact with the national team. So they're running an event on Sunday, which I'll do some content for. And then I also do a bit of video work for a social media management company and they work specifically with a lot of fitness studios, et cetera, which is cool. Yes. A lot of the work I've done so far is in that fitness space, which like if you remember earlier, what I said about the lake is that kind of aligns with yeah. where I want to be going and shooting random stuff. I like to think yeah. that I actually did get a new camera the other day because I always enjoyed doing it, but also at school and just when I was a kid, but I never really thought of pursuing it seriously and having ethnic parents, that was also not exactly an option. And then I got to a point where I just thought, oh, I'll thank my job. I don't want to like, <laughs> I want to do something I actually care about. So then I thought, whatever. I'm young enough now, do it. It doesn't work out. Yeah, man. What a cool story. It takes a lot of bravery. It's oh. PwC. We'll talk about that later, but that's the holy grail of aspirational career path, particularly for a lot of students. And so to, to decide, no, nah, I'm going to do my own thing, go out on my own, that's impressive. Yeah, no, I did think when, when Ben asked me to, if I wanted to ask these questions, I thought, you sure you want me, mate? Hopefully one day we look back on this recording and you kind of the story of buying a new camera and going around doing small gym videos, your origin stories of getting to the LA Lakers video and setting yourself up nicely for that. Yeah, no, well, I figured it was a bit like, do you know who Casey Neistat is? Yeah, I remember just him a few years ago, I watched a video of him and he was just talking about when he moved to New York or something, he was broke washing dishes. Yeah. He just maxed out his credit card buying one of the Macs with iMovie on it, started doing that and look where he is now. Yeah, that's right. And I think if you look at all the people I've got to somewhere amazing, there's always that kind of struggle origin story. How did you come to make the decision to leave PwC? As I said, that's not easy. And truth be told, most people don't. There's this concept of the pinstripe prison, which yeah. is actually a book. If you haven't read it, you should, but most people get trapped in these careers that they don't necessarily love and like the money, the leveraged up, got a big mortgage, got the commitments and they're often miserable, but they just can't break the cycle. They can't get out of it. So you've done that. How did you get to a point where you made that decision? I guess there were a couple elements in it for me. So for a big part of it was 
I'd grown up my whole life having this mindset engraved of, oh, you go to school, you go to uni, then once you finish uni, you go out and you, you get a real job. And a real job was always something that was like in an office or working for someone else, just that really typical nine to five. And anything outside of that just meant that, not that you were dropkick, but oh, that's not how you should be doing things. And I think that was like something I got from my parents and then something from school as well, where it's like, yeah, to be successful, you need to get really good grades and be a really high achiever academically, which I just don't think is the case in the real world at all. Like Richard Branson, for example, he's actually on paper, probably a bit of an idiot, but look where he is now. And so, yeah, I went on and I did that and I got my job at PwC and then I was there for two years and I just thought this is awful. And all through that first year, I just thought, what the hell, this is not what I expected at all. And then two things happened. So one of them, I met my girlfriend, she went to uni for a semester, hated it, dropped out. And she was just working like basically full-time at a dessert place. And I remember when I first met her, that whole old mindset still kicked in. I thought, oh, what, she didn't go to uni or she doesn't work in an office. And then there was a bit of a light bulb moment. I thought, well, actually, hang on. I went to uni, I work in an office and I hate my job. She didn't do any of that and she loves her job. So who am I to judge someone else who has just taken a completely different path? So that was like a really big wake up call for me. And then another thing, one of my mates actually, he very sadly passed away when he was doing the Lara Pinta trail. And he was super young, really fit and just, yeah, had heat stroke and then dropped dead. So that was like a massive shock and really had me evaluating if that could happen to me, is that something that I want to be doing? Am I doing something that I want to be doing? Am I excited about every day? And the answer to that was just no. So from basically that moment on, it took me a couple months, but I decided I wanted to leave and then. From there, it was about just opening up what's next. What am I going to do? And there we go. I didn't just say, no, I'm out and totally quit. But I certainly just went and said, I'm going to get any other job, anything that'll pay my bills for now. And then once that's set, locked in stone or set in, I'm just going to leave. Hey, that's so impressive. I feel like this is the perfect origin story for a really cool outcome. And incredibly self-aware of you too, to reflect on your friends sadly passing away and asking those tough questions. Like I say, like starting to interview a bunch of grads like this. And one of the questions we ask is, have your time again? Is there anything you'd change? And often the answer is no, or they just haven't thought about it. Clearly the stuff they're not enjoying, it's almost like they're not admitting it to themselves. Whereas you just kind of had the headspace to step back and really think about that hard and make yeah. some tough decisions. There's probably a lot of people and especially young grads, when you ask them those sorts of questions, they want to come up as a really impressive and that they care heaps about their work. So I feel like a lot of them are just going to say, oh no, I'm totally happy with everything I've done. That's led me to this point and I really want to be here, etc." Which for some people, yeah, I think that's true. But obviously myself, I've left PwC. I know Ben left Deloitte and I think he just realized quicker that he didn't enjoy it at all. I even remember like if I look back at my time at PwC and I wish there was a million things I said that I didn't or did do that I didn't do. Like one of the first, one of my first weeks there, because PwC's grad program started earlier, it started in December as opposed to March. And so I just really offhand mentioned to someone, oh yeah, one of my mates is starting at Deloitte. He gets one more summer off. That would have been cool. Because I basically finished uni, obviously COVID, my exams got delayed a bit. Finished uni like November the 30th or something. And then I started at PwC December 7th. So I barely had a break. And so I mentioned that to someone who then went and actually told my resource manager I'd said that. And I said that as a really offhand comment. And at the end of it, I was like, oh, whatever. I start getting paid earlier. So that's fine. And then out of Friday drinks or something, she started having one of those jokes with me. Oh, I heard you said this, that you wish you had another summer off. She said it with a joking tone, but I could tell she meant it. And it was like a really boring comment to make, which I, I should say as well, wasn't a reflection on everyone at PwC. But I look back on that and I think, oh, I should have just stood up for myself and said, you know what? Yes, I actually really would have liked another summer off because I'm 20 years old. I've just started full-time work. Like a lot of people don't start until about 26. So yeah, I really would have liked some extra time off. But at the time, like you're saying, I didn't have that extra perspective and I didn't have that sort of mindset. It was just, no, I need to try and impress everyone I can as quick as I can. No, like I said before, incredibly self-aware. How did you navigate the resignation with PwC? How did that conversation come up? 
It was a bit of, so one of my last jobs, I think, and it was around a time a bit after my mate died, we just had his funeral and all that. And then we were on this job, it was just getting busy and just my head wasn't in at all. And the manager on the job noticed, so she called me and just said, hey, what's going on? I've seen a lot of progression from you in the last, from the first time we worked together to now. And suddenly it just seems like things aren't right. So what's the explanation? And I just straight up said, yeah, look, I don't know if I want to be here anymore. I didn't know really whether or not to want to delve those details of what happened. It was just a bit fresh. So then from there, I just had a conversation with my team leader in a sense. And then I just, yeah, I said to him, look, here's what's happened mentally. I just don't know if I want to be here. I feel like it's not something I'm passionate about. I don't really care about my work. And I basically said all of this like a good month and a half before I actually resigned, which in hindsight, I probably wouldn't have done. But at the time, I just did not care. And I feel like I should have said that then resigned, but I waited a bit. But yeah, that, so that was the initial conversation. And then I guess like I've just said that I shouldn't have done that, but it then also was on his radar. So he knew Andy's not enjoying this. He is looking at moving somewhere else. And I guess it meant for them, they were a bit more aware about where my headspace was and what I was thinking. And then, so when the call, when I did give him the call and said, Hey Joe, I'm just letting you know, I'm about to hand in my formal resignation, going to give my month's notice or whatever it is. So yeah, that was it. I will say my team leader was very supportive in that decision. The first time I fully opened up to him and said, I'm not enjoying it. I don't want to do this. It wasn't a matter of, oh, we've invested all this time and money into you. It was just straight up. And I didn't expect this from him at all. Not that he wasn't a very lovely man. It was just, I'd always thought of him as a straight PWC shooter, but his instant response was, if you're not enjoying it, is there anything that I can do to help that within this firm? And if it's not within this firm, what do you want to do? And you should probably look at pursuing that instead. So yeah, it was very open and receptive to that. And then that gave me a bit more confidence. And a bit later, I just said to him, hey, I'm out. Why do you, with the benefit of hindsight, think you shouldn't have disclosed as early as you did? Did um, you, did people react to that or people treated you differently? No, I don't think they treated me differently, or at least not on the outside, but I think the cone of silence at any firm is never that going to be just that. So then word gets out and then people ask you, oh, hey, what are you thinking of doing? Because I think in the manager chat, I have to say, oh, hey, heads up, this person's thinking of leaving. Although I do think as well, it was like another thing I would have done differently. I didn't exactly hide how unhappy I was. Like if a client would do something that would piss me off, I'd just be in the office going, oh. Things like that. Whereas a lot of other people were very like stoic and calm. Whereas that to me, I'd just gotten over the hill and went, no, nah, I cannot deal with this. Just, it's not that hard. Why does it have to be this difficult? I don't know. I've never been on the client side of it. So to be honest, that's probably poor judgment for me to just straight up say that. But I didn't think it seemed too hard when I'd ask for something and they would give me everything related to a transaction, except the one thing I asked for. How did you get this, but not just the invoice itself? Yeah. But yeah, I guess to me, it was just, if I was going to disclose that information, I should have done it sooner to when I left. The counter argument would be that you did the right thing. You gave your employer time to discuss and rectify. So that openness yeah. and honesty is usually appreciated from the employer at least should be yeah and i think it was by like my team leader but even in that regard like a lot of people when they leave party pwc a partner will try and jump in and have all these last minute meetings with them and they'll convince try and convince you to stay that wasn't the case with me which you can either take as a me being really bad at my job which i hope wasn't the case or b i think they knew that because i wasn't like moving to a rival firm or wasn't moving in anywhere else in accounting i think they just knew oh there's no point in us trying to convince him to stay in accounting because he clearly doesn't want to be there yeah totally and do you remember the first moment when you started to think to yourself that perhaps a, this career path at pwc isn't right for you i thought that within two weeks it was after that conversation i had with my rm and she was ribbing me about wanting an extra three months off or my last summer off that was just instant. I thought, is this where I want to be? But at the time I was 20, I was about to turn 21. And to me, like you were saying earlier, it was that holy grail. I was in this great job because I'd done my summer vacation program there the year before and I actually quite enjoyed it. And then that's a bit of a shock. I don't really know why that's a bad thing to say. Well, actually at the time I thought, oh no, I've committed a cardinal sin. I shouldn't have said anything like that. 
But now I look back on it, if I were in that position, if I was still at PwC and a grad said that to me, I would have gone, hey, fair enough. I don't know why our program starts so early. So yeah, within that first kind of week, two weeks was when I thought, is this for me? I was so young and I was in this position that's really hard to attain for a lot of people. So I just thought, nah, it must be a me problem. I'm going to stick it out. And as I like, went along, the timeline got shorter and shorter. It went from, oh, I'm just going to stay here until I can get like a manager bonus or I'm going to be here for a couple of years until I can move to investment banking. Oh, I'm yeah. just going to like a senior promotion then and that'll be in my resume forever. I'll be, I was a senior. Yeah. Oh, I was going to be here until the end of the year. Oh, no, nah, I'm out now. Yeah. No, well done. What you're describing there is the archetypal pinstripe prison pathway where you get good grades at school, you go to uni almost out of a sense of obligation, study the right things, not because you have a passion for it, but because it's expected path or it's using up your age or entry score. I didn't even study accounting. I studied finance at uni. I always thought I was going to be this big investment banker. And then one season of one year, one busy season at PW, working late every night, getting in early every morning. And I immediately realized, no, I'd actually hate being an investment banker. I don't care how much money they can pay me or I could make here because if this is my lifestyle, that's not worth it. Yeah. No, again, you're realizing this stuff well before most people do. And I guess the other thing I'm interested when you finally made the decision to move on from PwC, how did friends and family react? My friends were thrilled. They'd been telling me for months beforehand, you need to get out. You need to get out. Uh, I have a mate. He is a very good videographer and he was super encouraging all their parents as well were very like yeah just get out andy on the flip side of that my parents were pretty unhappy with that decision which i think for them being immigrants coming to a different country and then having to work their way from nothing it was like oh he's just giving up this really good job and i certainly grappled with that a lot i think the reason it took me so long was because i felt like am i throwing away everything my parents worked for and then as well, the cleaner at our office, he was like an immigrant from Serbian war back in the 90s or something. And he was always just so happy to be there every day. And so I always thought to myself, look how happy he is. And I'm in this job that a lot of people would consider to be much better. And I am so unhappy. Am I just being like an ungrateful? And then the same thing I said with, am I just throwing away my parents' opportunities here? But then the other side of that, I also had that realization of there's a reason my parents came to this country to try and get better opportunities. And it's almost a waste in itself for me to just stay and do something that I absolutely hate. Because if I was born in China, that's what I would probably would have been doing. Yeah, totally. I guess the more important question is that, do you feel like you're happier now? Made the difficult call? Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. I think a big part of that is I actually love my job now, which I never thought I'd say. I think financially it's tougher, which is just always going to be the case if you're not on a salary. And there are a lot of moments of self-doubt when recording videos and editing the footage back together. And I think, oh, geez, it doesn't look how I pictured it in my head. It doesn't look how I storyboarded it out. This is getting really tough and I've not been doing this for long enough to know every, the ins and outs and how to make everything the way I exactly want it to be. So there's certainly that self-doubt and questioning my decision. And I wake up every day and I think, did I make the right call? But fundamentally, I love my job at Lululemon. I love the people I work with, the community that it has. And even there, we've got a woman, she was a lawyer in America for a couple of years and she was making very good money, thought she realized how much she hated it and moved to Adelaide. So. That's just such a good environment to be in. And that just contributes overall to my happiness. I've got much more flexibility in my life in the sense of I can, it's easier for me to swap shifts around if I need a day off here and there. Like for example, this Saturday, I was meant to be shooting for someone. I had a shift scheduled. If I was at PwC, I'd have to be taking leave or something. But here it was just messaging people who weren't working and they said, yeah, I can cover this part of the shift. I can cover this part of the shift. And then boom, I'm freed up again for Saturday. So it's just the greater flexibility and the more positive environment or one that aligns more with me. It sounds like you're really enjoying the video production stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah. I've loved doing it my whole life. I'd never done it on a professional scale or a properly professional scale. So to be in that zone now and really trying to pursue it, it's very exciting. It's scary. It's super scary. But I think if I'd stayed at POVC and then incurred all these financial commitments while I was at that job, that would have been really scary as well. 
because I would have thought, yeah. oh, I can't leave now. I have a mortgage or I can't leave now. I've got kids. I think one of my mates said there's a very good, it's, uh, yeah, leaving your job's a huge risk, but so is staying in your job for 10 years doing something you don't like because it just means you're going to take that risk a lot later. So it's not a matter, it's just a matter of when, not if you take the risk. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's untold benefits to you just being generally happier and less stressed yeah. day to day. It's hard to quantify that, but those years of just of being in an environment that's not good for you, they take their toll. The effects accumulate pretty quickly. It's hard to realize that when you're young, but 10 years of that and you look, look at yourself in the mirror one day and you're like, gosh, what's, what have I become? This is yeah. not what I had planned. Brilliant. We'll come back to the video stuff a bit later. I guess for the benefit of a lot of students who don't know a whole lot about PwC, two parts what do they actually do and then what did your role involve yeah PwC they're obviously a professional services firm I think they're overarching considered an accounting firm in Adelaide there are a couple arms and then they open this big skilled service hub so there's now actually two offices in Adelaide there's one which is was the one I was in so they have audit tax and advisory and then a consulting arm and then the big one in Rundle Mall I don't actually know I know they've got heaps of different business units, but they essentially support all the other business units around Australia. But they just, yeah, they provide professional services. I don't actually really know what they did in tax. In consulting, it looks like they just made PowerPoints all day, which I think is a stereotype. Or it, enough. it is a stereotype because that's what everyone asks. Oh, do you know any consultants? But then every day in the office, that is what they would be doing all day. I was in consulting, not at PwC, but spreadsheets and PowerPoint. So yeah, I was in auditing basically. So I was auditing financial statements and there's a lot of different branches of auditing. You can have internal auditing, which doing a lot of controls, testing and implementing plans for companies to be able to only audit their financial statements. There's transformation auditing, which I don't actually know anything about. I just know we have people that did it. But the big one for PwC is external audit, which is what I was in. So as I'm saying, that's auditing people's financial statements. If we go back to the conversation earlier, if I'm doing something like testing of a revenue, for example, I might just pick 10 random transactions. Well, it's always way more, but let's just say 10. And I'd say, hey, for this transaction, I need to see the invoice. I need to see the bank showing money coming in. I need to see a contract, which often was the invoice. And I need to see you know, the shipping documents to show delivery of the item or the service getting that provides revenue. And so we would then document all of those, note any differences. And if there was differences between what we'd asked for and what they provided, we'd project those out on the population. And there was something called performance materiality, which is basically, you can't get every number the exact same. If there's a company that's doing $120 million in revenue, of course, I don't have the time. No one has the time to go through every single transaction and make sure that 120 million is correct. So we just choose X amount, 65 of them, and we calculate what we thought that number should be based on the information they provided us. And if it was like $82,000, we'd project that difference over the rest of the population. And then that goes back into the performance materiality. And that was a threshold of acceptable numbers. So for big companies, it ends up, so it, it can be like, $1.4 million, which you might think, oh my God, that's a huge difference. How could you let that happen? But yeah, it's remembering things like you know, dealing in foreign exchange rates. Often they're pretty different. Like if they did heaps of foreign exchange transactions, they might have a really different exchange rate to us or different in the sense of it's out by 0.002, which ultimately does have a pretty big effect. And so it's just providing assurance or like reasonable assurance that, yep, these numbers are presented pretty fairly. You can't say that they're 100% accurate, but you can say they're within that ballpark figure. So yeah, sure, they're good to go. Yeah. And this assurance process, is this something that companies have to do? If you're listed, yes, you have to. Yeah. I think if you're independent, I don't think you have to, but I know a lot of people do because if you don't have external auditors coming in, some people can just cook the books, which I always thought oh, it'd be so easy just to put through fraudulent pay cycles to yourself, especially in a big corporation. The only risk that comes with that is if one of the transactions the auditor happens to pick is one of the fraudulent ones that you put in, yeah. then it's, or you start getting questions and auditors yeah. will, or good auditors will flag it. Some of them get 
God, no, we really need this client. So we're just going to sign off on their financials. Yeah. Did you ever have any exciting moments like that where you come across something that's a bit spicy? I wish. I know my first client, I think two or three years before, there'd been some stuff going on with one of their payroll officers and she actually ended up going to prison and just no one was able to pick up on it. But I never saw anything personally that exciting. There were definitely times where I was like, oh, that smells like fraud to me. (laughs) It was always more, I was joking around just saying that, but there was like a semblance of truth of, oh, that doesn't actually make sense. So why has that gone through? But then you talk to the client and oftentimes they're able to just fully explain it. When they explain it, you just document that down as an exception. And you say, based on the evidence, we're not actually going to project on the rest of the population because it doesn't make sense. It's a very one-off occurrence. They've given us all the documentation for it. So that's fine. Oh, okay. You've given a really good overview of what the role and the company is about. But like practically day-to-day, what does your day end up looking like? Like what do you do when you arrive in the morning? Do you want the real answer? Do you want the answer that everyone gives? I want the real answer so that students who are like wondering what to do with their career make a good choice. Yes, fair enough. So a lot of people like to say that auditors work really long hours and they work really hard. That is not a lie, but it's not 100% the truth. I feel like it's overblown in how much auditors work. Yes, I felt like there were definitely times like during end of year. So for any June 31 clients, those periods did get very busy. And I certainly remember there were a few weeks, there did periods of a few weeks long where I'd be getting into the office at eight leaving at seven, six, seven, sometimes getting in earlier, sometimes getting in like at nine, but then you'd be leaving at seven or eight o'clock. So there were definitely long days involved, but the benefits of PwC, there was a lot of flexibility. So you could actually just work from home if you wanted, which is another thing that I wish I took really guilty about working from home, which I just don't think you should add at all. So there was that flexibility. I really did a lot of the team, a lot like 90, 95% of people I got along very well with. And so it was just, you can just chat with them, chill around the place, go get lunch, et cetera, go get coffees. It was a hot desk situation. So it was really good. It was an open floor plan. You weren't relegated to sitting at one desk every single day. Some people did just because they liked the desk they were at. But if you wanted to change things up, you definitely could. I thought that was fantastic. And it meant that you could also just sit with all levels of people. It wasn't like partners were locked away in their office and you could never get a word in with them or senior managers were here or managers were there. It was just everyone sat amongst everyone. So that's the office layout. And yeah, other than that, outside of the busy seasons, I did think it could be pretty typical nine to five. It was also like, if you needed, you could always have a three hour block in the middle of the day to do your own thing. It was just about making up the hours elsewhere, which some people took to extreme liberties. So don't do that. Don't start at four in the afternoon and finish at 3am because that doesn't align with anyone's work schedule. So that's pretty hard. You could always just say, hey, I'm actually going to need from 12 onwards to do something else. And if you didn't want it to be annual leave or unpaid leave or whatever, you can just stay an extra hour all the other days. So outside of busy season, I'd say it was very nine to five in the sense of if you tick off all those hours during the week, yep, all good. During busy season, that's when it got pretty tough sometimes. But I should very heavily stress, I think that part's overblown. I don't think auditors love to complain about how many hours they work. I don't think that's the reality 100% of the time. No, I got it. Okay, so it sounds like you're assigned to one client at a time. Yeah. And then you described the audit process. What does that look like in practice? Are you chasing invoices all day? Yeah, so within that client, you'd get assigned areas or parts of the financial statements. If you think of their financial statements, the income statement, essentially you're just looking at the numbers on the income statement and the numbers on the balance sheet and making sure they're all ticked off. You wouldn't really do testing over cash. You do testing over accounts receivable. Or for example, if I got assigned testing over accounts receivable, what I would do is I'd ask for a breakdown of all your accounts receivable, how they're aged, and like outside of that, then you'd go, what's the provision of accounts receivable? And then you'd perform your testing over there. Do you want to break down how that works? I guess I'm more curious from a student's perspective who has this idea in their head that it's all glamour and high-flying finance, but just like at any given moment in the day, what are you actually doing? So a lot of it was you would be inputting things into spreadsheets to make sure they would work. You'd be getting, I reckon, 80 percent i'm just going to say 80 i can't exactly remember but i reckon 80 percent of transactions we tested the numbers we tested 
would always just end up relating back to the invoice they either received or sent. And as a matter of looking at the information on that invoice, inputting it on our spreadsheet, and then seeing does that number align with what they've told us or for example what i'm saying with the provision stuff you look at the aging of the receivables and you assign collectability probability based on that age so i'd look at the invoice i'd say oh you sent this invoice over 90 days ago i'm now going to consider that as you've only got like a 75 percent chance of getting that money back so then you would multiply that 75 percent by the invoice amount and that would give you x figure like 75 grand and then you go look at their provision for accounts receivable like how much have they provisioned for to lose and you'd see have they actually provisioned a 75 percent there or have they done it differently you've got a bit of money coming in or out let's say from the bank account and you need to confirm that actually came from where it said it was coming from or went to where it said as opposed to just being siphoned off so it was just making sure that it was, it, yeah essentially it was just checking that transactions were real and that they could provide the paperwork for all of them and then obviously those transactions affect specific accounts or specific parts of the balance sheet so it's just choosing different transactions from every single line item except for the line items that were very insignificant if it yeah. was this huge company and they had hundred thousand dollar thing in their balance sheet more often yeah. than just probably not even yeah. looked at. Cool. No, I get it. So I can see that being interesting for a few weeks, but I'd imagine that would become pretty repetitive pretty quickly. Yes and no. I think the nature of moving onto different clients at all times did mean that different clients had different problems. So one of the things I did enjoy about my time at WC was when you'd come up with clients who had problems and didn't know how to solve them. For example, one of my clients, they had a lot of options that were vesting and they'd use the black shoals model incorrectly so they had to completely rework that model and that's something that i had to help them with and that was actually a really rewarding process because i know they were really grateful for that they asked us for our work papers after the audit to make sure they could get it right the next year so i just like it's that other 20 percent of not looking at invoices it's doing that problem solving doing that troubleshooting and trying to work out together with them what the number should be because sometimes they don't even know they just say look we've just done that we actually don't know we need your help with this and yeah there are certain times where that gets a bit iffy and it's all oh, you actually need to engage another arm of our business or for independence you need to talk to ey's tax team or something for example but there were times like if it's something like i just said like an options model yes i can help you with that and yes i can help you calculate what that figure should be and then you'd have conversations with their CEO and the partner, the senior manager and myself, and we'd be sitting there and all of us are just doing calculations and saying, it should be this because of this, or it should be that because of that. That's cool. That, that sounds more getting into the realm of consulting where you've got a problem for the client and you're helping yeah. them solve it. So you said before that it wasn't what you expected. As a student, the reality differed from that. What did you expect and how did the reality differ? I guess as a student when I went in, I think a lot of it actually was to do with the first team I worked with. But as a student, I went in and I actually pretty much did the same thing that I was doing. I felt like the team I worked with when I was a student, when I was a vacuum, was really good. Everyone was really supportive. But on my first job, the one of the managers I thought would just had a serious problem with me from the get-go and they just weren't like supportive of any mistakes I made, just made me feel like every time I was asking for help, that I was just this huge nuisance. So while the work itself was similar, I didn't retain much of that information. So I was just really fresh, didn't know it, and I didn't feel supported by this one specific manager, which made things really uncomfortable for me. And then that was also like, oh, this is nothing like that job I did over the summer. That was all roses. That was all fun. I was going out to the client every day here. Yeah, the internship was really yeah. good. I really liked the team. Whereas my first actual job at PwC felt like one of the managers just had a serious problem with me. And then that made the job really hard. Even though the work I was doing was fundamentally the same, I didn't feel as supported and I didn't feel as encouraged. And so as a result of that, it was just like I was going into the office and it was a very big client, but I'd be going into the office at 7 a.m., leaving at 6.30, 7 p.m as a my first three weeks on the job and just to sit there and feel like I was an idiot because I wasn't getting that support. So it was just a bit of a wake up call in the sense of not every team at PwC is going to be like the one I worked on as a vacuum. And I know some people when they were vacuums had really bad experiences because they got put with a bad team. I think a big part of it would depend on you worked with. And as I said, I thought 95% of the people there were great. They liked them, but there were those couple of people that I thought, oh, you're just being a dick for the sake of it. Sorry. No, nah, yeah, I can imagine that shapes your experience quite heavily. 
And I guess worth, worth, worth asking then. So when you were a student, first of all, how did you come across PwC? And then what was it that made you want to work for them specifically? I actually, as a student, knew nothing about any of the big four. I just did this thing. So I think a lot of people apply for grad roles, et cetera. I got quite lucky in the sense that they just offered me one after my VACI program. The VACI program, I got through this thing called, I don't remember, CA Achievers Program. It's set up by the CA, so it was going to be more based in accounting. But you go and you do psychometric testing, like play those games or do really quick mass puzzles. And then they invite you to like a focus group or something, not a focus group, but you get an assessment center. And then from there, you sit down at a table with four or five other people and you get handed a problem and you have to find a way to solve it. And everyone's, you, you get someone from certain firms and they go and sit on each table and just see how you're doing. And they just, I guess they want to see how you work in a team, how you involve everyone else and how you also just solve the problem to begin with. So out of that, I got two internships, one to PwC, one to a mid-tier firm called PKF. And I did those back to back in the summer. And yeah, PwC offered me a job and said yes. When I did my PKF interview internship, they knew that I'd already had my offer from PwC. And then, but I said yes with the thought of, I'm still going to apply to other places because you can always say no. And that's what one of my friends from PwC told me as well. He went, because I said to him, oh, they sent me a contract and all that, but if I sign it, am I just locked in forever? And he was like, not at all. There's people who get other jobs and pull out. But then obviously COVID hit. I was interested in going overseas or trying to go overseas or interstate for investment banking. But then COVID came in. I just thought, oh, I'd probably rather just stay at home at the moment. And there's not really a scope. For, there is a scope for it, but I feel like there's not that much of a scope for investment banking in Adelaide. So I'm going to stay where I'm just going to take my PwC offer. And then in three years, I'll see where that leads me down the road. Yeah, that's... How I ended up at PwC. Any, uh, for the students just having listened to this, are still keen on PwC, you've obviously navigated the application screening process and got those offers. Any kind of advice there, like do you, um, selecting back on it? I mean, I didn't do PwC's specific one. I think the biggest advice is just be yourself. Show that you're a good person to work with. They don't really care whether you know your stuff or not. You can be like really smart, really clever, know the ins and outs of every single accounting standard. But if you're just not that personable or really difficult to work with more often than not, I say more often than not because there were people like the firm, but more often than not, they're not going to hire you. It's about showing that you can be a team player and showing that. I always fundamentally said it's about showing that you're just a good person or a good bloke because ultimately they're looking for people that they're going to be sitting with potentially up to 12, 14 hours a day when it gets really busy. So they want someone that they'll get along with or they want someone who's eager to learn. They don't want like some know-it-all who thinks they know everything about accounting to begin with. Yeah, it's good advice. We used to call it the airport test and consulting where the person you're interviewing, you're sitting across from the table and you ask yourself, if I'm on a flight to a client, the flight gets delayed for five hours. Yeah. Do I want to be stuck in the airport for five hours with this person? And the answer is no, there's your answer. You shouldn't hire them. Sage advice. Going back to leaving PwC, you mentioned one of the difficult bits has been financially tougher. Is there any other things that you've found difficult to making that call? I think if I had been pressured a lot by the partners, then I might have found it a bit more difficult, but that obviously wasn't the case. And the partners I did speak to, they were also, or at least one of them was very, yeah, screw it, do what you want to do. Like, I was like, here, this is, and then he even talked about how like the ceiling at PwC, et cetera. But a lot of the difficulty was, I think, internalized as well. And it goes back to what I was saying about, am I throwing away this opportunity that's been given to me? So that those were the difficult parts. But I think even in that sense, I'm not going to call myself a trailblazer. I'm not the first person that left at PwC. But I, I know there's been, there's people who are in my grad group or the grad group below me. One of the girls messaged me the other day or the other month asking me for help because she said, hey, look, I'm really not happy here. What was your mindset? And I just said, oh, I put these plans in place. And then I got a message from her last night and she said, hey, I quit my last days on Friday. Thanks so much for your help. And that to me was like this big moment of validation. So it's like, cool. Like, other people are now seeing that I'm just off doing something that I love and they're not resigning themselves to just staying where they don't be so yes it was like financially it's a bit more difficult and emotionally there's that turmoil of every day geez did i make the right choice but 
to see other people saying, like asking me, hey, Andy, how are things for you? I'm thinking of leaving as well. And then seeing them leave something that they're not happy doing is awesome. Uh, it's good stuff, man. I guess we've got an idea of what your average day looked like at PwC. How about now? What's just contrasting the two? What's the day look like now? My days now are, it's either I'm out learning how to use my camera, learning how to use the editing software. If I'm not working, I'm either, yeah, learning how to use the camera, learning how to use my editing software. I try and get out and surf as much as I can. Cause I think that's just so good mentally for me. I do have that downtime as well. I'm not one of those people that always trying to work on the next thing. I think it's valuable to chill out a bit. But yeah, other than that, if I've got work at Lululemon, I'll go work there, do my hours. And that, that's the big thing I like about it. At Lulu, I do my hours, I leave, and I don't think about it. Whereas at PwC, I would be even on those nine to five days or whatever at night, I'd be thinking, oh, what do I need for tomorrow? Or I need to make lunch for tomorrow. I need to start thinking about this meeting tomorrow, with this client, what would I be saying? And so I never fully switched off. Whereas at Lulu, yep, I switch off and then I'm into the next thing. It's either I'm chilling or I'm working on my video or I'm working on my wine label. It's just my days now don't have that set structure, which to some people is really valuable and they really like that. I think to an extent it's good for me as well, or was good for me, but now I really value the flexibility of kind of being able to pick and choose what my day looks like on the day. That's uh, absolutely value in that. And like I said, it's not for everybody. Some people really need someone looking over their shoulder, holding them to account, being told what to do. And uh, where to from here? You touched on the long-term dream of working in the US, doing your video, but like kind of the next year or two, do you have a bit of a, an idea of where you want to be heading in the medium term? I don't know. I try and take things day by day or week by week. One of my friends, he's only a pretty good story or a good bit of information, but he worked at the Adelaide International in early January. And he said, and he got to interview people like Novak Djokovic. If you asked him last year in October, where do you think you'll be in three months? His answer definitely wouldn't have been talking to Novak Djokovic. So for him, it became a bit of, because I think a lot of people get fixated on, oh, I'm 20. 24 and I haven't done this, I'm 28 and I haven't done this yet, I'm 30 and I don't have this in my life yet. And I think he was one of those people that also had that idea. But after that, it was like, you could be 45 and suddenly things can change for you. It's like the age doesn't matter. It's just about your mindset and taking it day by day and going day by day and making those steps. Because one month he was just doing random marketing for a small accounting firm. Two months later, he's talking to the best tennis player in the world, arguably the best he's ever lived. So like that was just a huge, oh, I can do this moment for him. Just you can't set those expectations so early on. Like for some people it works, but for him, I think he's realized it's all about just the process and just trusting in it and things will work out where they should. And that's where I'm taking that mindset, I guess. Short term, the main goals are just keep improving on my videography, keep improving on my editing skills and get this wine label launched in the next year. But outside of that, I don't have aspirations of where I want to be, where I want to be moving. Do I want to stay in Adelaide? Do I want to leave Adelaide? Those aren't things I'm trying to think of right now. Yeah, totally. And certainly no rush. I think I read somewhere that, that in entrepreneurship and what you're doing is a form of entrepreneurship, but the average age of a successful like a unicorn founders, like mid forties, it's rarely people have this misconception that all the successful entrepreneurs that dropped out of uni and hit success immediately, but that's very rarely the case. Would you want to be moving into video production full time? Yeah, I'd love to. Like that would be the dream. Yeah, we'll do it for the Lakers, but if not the Lakers, just to have my own production company and just be telling stories all the time, I guess. That part of it is just start a really successful YouTube channel. Love it. You're obviously you're already picking up a few clients. How did you go about that? Because that's often the biggest hurdle is that first client. Once you've made the leap, the first revenue, that's a bigger milestone than almost any other. I do think it's interesting just firstly that you're saying it's the biggest milestone because for me, yeah, it definitely was. And the very first time I sent someone a new voice and got paid for it, it was this huge, oh my God, I've actually done it. Someone's paid me for work that I've done. And that was this, like a bit, a moment of validation, but it was also scary because it meant it was real. And now this is something that, oh, that's going to be something that I actually put on my tax return. I made this amount of money this year based on work that I've done as a sole trader. 
And so now it's real, like there's no turning back now, but it was an awesome feeling. It was just leveraging anyone I knew who had any sort of business or would need any sort of video service. And it, it just straight up messaging and saying, Hey, I'm transitioning into the video space. Just wondering, do you need any sort of video work done? And there was a couple of no's here and there was one, so my mate who owns the gym, he said, Hey bro, like that sounds awesome. That's unfortunately, that's just not in my budget right now, but I'll definitely let you know when that works out. And at that point I went, nah, like I'll do it for free. I'll do you a reel for free and I'm going to back myself in. And if you like what I do, then we can see if there's a good partnership there. And so I did a free piece of work for him. And it was just taking a punt on myself because it's not like it took me 20 minutes to do. I went and filmed at his gym for three hours and then spent a couple hours at home editing it all together, grading, color grading it, making it look nice, finding the music that I wanted, et cetera. And if I value my time at X amount per hour, it was like a $500 job that I've done for nothing just because I wanted to get my foot in the door and say, this is what I can do. Let me prove to you that I'm capable and we can work from here. And he saw it, he loved it and went, oh mate, that's incredible. Yes will definitely get you in. And then he's managed to find money in the budget to start paying me now. And then from that, it just got me a bit more exposure. That's a cool story, Matt. Well done. Putting yourself yeah. out there, using your network, getting your foot in the door with a free job. That's fantastic work. And you're finding it easier to pick up new uh, clients now, still in the trenches? Yes and no. There's certainly client jobs I've been doing that I look at them and I think, oh, gee, that's just not how I wanted to go or that like. The interesting thing is in my head, I've always got this picture of what it's going to look like. And then when it comes to actually filming it, sometimes it just doesn't look the same. Or sometimes I look back at the footage and I think, oh, I should have asked them to do this. Or I should have gotten them to do this instead. But that is also part of the fun of you have to adapt and create something new out of something you weren't expecting. But there's certainly been moments of this is a lot harder than I thought it would or should be right now. And then, yeah, I guess... Based off that, building the client base is sometimes taking on jobs you don't necessarily want to do and finding that balance between this job isn't going to pay as much as I would like, but do I need it for my portfolio or is it something I want to have on my portfolio and just striking that balance. If I wasn't working at Lululemon or didn't have any other sort of source of income, I'd be saying yes to every single job I could get, no matter what the content, but because I guess financially, I still have that. It does afford me that flexibility to say, no, I can't do this on this day, or I don't want to do that job or don't want to do this. I and guess someone who's just starting is probably not the best idea. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And what do jobs pay when you're starting out for anyone who's thinking about going in your footsteps? So I think that's the really difficult part. It's about pricing yourself. So one of the people I work for, they give me 30 an hour, which I think I'd like more, but the nature of that relationship is they can't afford to pay me more. And that goes back to me saying, do I need this job or not? And it was one of those things where it was like, yes, I probably do because it give me exposure to this wider set of clients. Other jobs I do, I might charge like $200 for a 20 second reel or a 30 second reel, but that in itself might take a couple hours to do. This national project I'm doing with this gym that's going to be like over a grand and that'll be a couple of hours work as well so it i think yeah like with creative media that and all that sort of stuff the hardest part is about pricing yourself and i'm still discovering that i haven't been doing this for four years and i don't know in my head yeah my day rate is this yeah you're six months in right yeah pretty yeah. much and yeah basically the first two months i didn't really do anything it was just shitting myself about my decision and what have i done so it was basically at the turn of the year where I really didn't, all right, now it's time to do it. So yeah, I think the biggest thing is don't undervalue your own time because Absolutely. like I've probably done that with a few things I've done. And I guess the reason I did that was because I'm so new. I was just like, no, nah, I need to like, just undercut in a sense anyone else so that I can ensure I can get this work. But with that being said, if you undervalue your own time, sometimes that also just means like people look at you and think, oh, if they don't think they're worth that much, why would I think they should be worth anything? Why would I think the quality of their work would be good? Yeah, it's a tough balance to strike. It's hard yeah. to know what the right call is there. Have you been tempted to jump in full-time, put yourself on a bunch of freelance contract sites and pick up enough gigs to, because at the rate you've been able to charge, you, you could, assuming you were doing it full-time, that's a good income. It's because I feel like my technical capabilities still aren't at the point where I want them to be. So I feel like my creative eye has always been really good and I've always been able to see things 
and think, oh, that would look really cool. And when I storyboard it, it's all in my head. I think this is going to look awesome. It's going to look so sick. But then when it comes to actually shooting it and actually executing it, I'm not at the level yet I want to be where everything is the way I want it to be. Because And that's like I was saying, where things end up different or things don't go exactly to plan. So technically, there's still a gulf between what I see in my head and what I'm able to do on the screen. And so I wouldn't want to pursue it full time until I'm able to close that gap. Yeah, fair enough. So just in the skill building phase, this has been super interesting, man. To wrap this part of the conversation up, do you have any advice, final advice for grads at PwC on the fence about uh, their career decision? Gee, maybe he's going to hate me, but <laughs> if you're on the fence, I think it's worth talking to your team leader, depending on who it is. And if it's not your team leader, someone that you feel comfortable with and just saying, hey, I'm not sure about my role here. What do you think? Because if that person has your best interest at heart, they're going to say either leave or they're going to consider other factors in. So I think it's good to talk to someone else just to get a bit of a clearer picture, but ultimately the decision has to be yours. Don't stay at PwC or stay at Deloitte or EY or KPMG because someone else tells you to stay. Stay because you want to stay, because you know that there's benefits to staying and because you know that's going to help you in the long run. And on the other side, don't leave just because someone tells you to leave. Don't leave a stable job just because your friend said, oh, you don't look like you're very happy. You should leave and do something else. Because if I'd listened to that, I would have left three months in. But also, And then if I'd left on someone else's accord, I probably would have been bitter and would have been like, what the hell? Why did I make that decision? Like I should have just stayed. And I would have always been thinking, whereas leaving based on my own terms and coming to that decision by myself, even though I had people in my ear saying for so long you should leave, it was ultimately me who went, yeah, no, nah, I don't want to be here anymore. This is not for me. I'm going to make that decision. That's given me a lot more assurance, ironically, assurance in that decision and a lot more confidence. And even then I still have doubts about it. So I can't imagine what it would have been like if I just left because someone else told me I should leave. Yeah, really good advice. And look, honestly, that advice is in line with what the employer would want as well. There's nothing worse from an employer perspective, a resignation that comes out of the blue. The right thing to do by an employer, if you're questioning it, is discuss it with them. Give them an opportunity to fix stuff or help you come to the right decision. There's nothing to be gained by hiding your the fact that you're questioning it. Like any good manager would really appreciate that directness and forwardness. It's yeah. it's good advice all around from the employer and for the grad. Mate, this has been great. I think you've got a great vision that you're working towards and love how you talk about storytelling and obviously that's what we're trying to do here right tell stories like yours so that students out there who don't know what their options are or are overwhelmed can hear from other people like you and just make better decisions with a bit more confidence and i reckon you could help us out there i have a feeling and thanks for your time that was great i'm sure there's going to be a whole bunch of people out there that really appreciate the honesty you just displayed there so as i keep saying very self-aware of you think about the way you have and really excited to see where you end up. Thanks very much, Jeff. Thank you for having me. 